Welcome to Torah for Christians, my friends. I am Rabbi Jordan Parr. And for the last time, we're going to rebroadcast an episode from last year on Sukkot and Simchat Torah. We'll be coming back with fresh episodes next week, so please stay tuned. In the meantime, enjoy this Sukkot special. Um, you'll hear it on the first day of Sukkot, so take it to heart, and the following week is Simchat Torah, and we'll give you a new one as our gift then. Have a great holiday, and we will talk again next week. It's time to wave palm fronds in the temple, but it's not Palm Sunday. It's Sukkot. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. Four days after Yom Kippur, our holiday overload continues with the festival of Sukkot. Sukkot, also known as the Feast of Booths, is an agrarian festival in the Jewish calendar. Jewish farmers will go out to their fields during the fall harvest and dwell in a temporary structure called a sukkah. And the plural of sukkah is Sukkot where the holiday gets its name, and they would dwell in these structures for seven days. The sukkah is basically a hut, bordered on three sides and with a roof made of branches that must also allow you to see the stars at night. Leviticus 23, verses 33 to 36, gives us the source for Sukkot. And I quote, On the 15th day of the seventh month, there shall be the Feast of Booths to the Eternal to last seven days. The first day shall be a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations. Seven days you shall bring offerings by fire to the Eternal. On the eighth day, you shall observe a sacred occasion and bring an offering by fire to the Eternal. It is a solemn gathering. You shall not work at your occupations. Sukkot is the third of the three pilgrimage festivals, following the spring festivals of Passover and Shavuot. During these three festivals, Jews would come from the countryside and offer produce and animals upon the altar in the Jerusalem temple. Of course, these were times of great celebration, as the people came together to celebrate a beautiful harvest and to praise God for divine beneficence, especially on Sukkot, the gift of water as this festival also marked the start of the rainy season in Israel. Numbers chapter 29, starting with verse 12, tells us that on Sukkot, 70 bulls were sacrificed over the seven days of the festival, making it a bonanza for meat lovers. Significantly, the number 70 has great importance in Judaism. In Tractate Sukkah in the Talmud, we read, Rabbi Yochanan said, Woe unto the nations who lost something and do not know what they lost. My friend and colleague, Rabbi Heather Miller, the founder of Keeping It Sacred, and who joined us a few weeks ago on this podcast, comments, When the temple was destroyed, the nations of the world also lost something great. Because during the festival of Sukkot, 70 bulls were sacrificed on the altar, corresponding to the 70 nations of the earth. Each sacrifice atoned for each nation. But since the temple was destroyed, 
Rabbi Yochanan realizes that these nations don't realize what they lost. Woe to them. This is rabbinic proof that when one of us thrives, we all thrive. And when one of us destroys the other, we are all destroyed, whether we realize it or not. We must all love and protect one another and all flourish together. In the 13th century, Rashi connects the 70 sacrifices for the nations of the world to another major theme of the holiday, prayers for rain. He explains that the 70 bulls atone for them, atone for the nations of the world, so that rain will fall across the world because we are judged on this holiday for water. We learned earlier that on Yom Kippur, God decides who shall live and who shall die. On Sukkot, God decides how much rain will fall in the coming year. These 70 sacrifices are in effect Israel's atonement for the entire world. But when the Romans destroyed the temple, this atonement ended so the world, sadly, is on its own. Once the temple was destroyed, the emphasis of the festival shifted to dwelling in Sukkot and emphasizing specific rituals. Many Jews today, and virtually every synagogue, fulfills the mitzvah of building a sukkah. Today, there are structures usually made of wood. Many sukkot are erected just after Yom Kippur and are taken down after the festival ends. The building materials are not important, and a building wall can be used as one of the three temporary walls. Often, children help to decorate the walls, hang decorations from the overhead beams supporting the schach, the branches covering the roof of the sukkah, and join in the overall celebrations. And while many Jews will eat their meals in the sukkah during the week, some Jews also sleep in it, weather permitting. It is also common to sukkah hop, going from one sukkah to another. This custom echoes another ancient Jewish ritual on Sukkot called Ushpizin, the welcoming of our ancestors into our sukkah. On certain nights, we might invite Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Joseph, Moses, David, and others to join us symbolically, and in so doing, ask for their protection from the elements and to intercede on our behalf before God. The unique feature of the sukkah is the roofing. As I mentioned earlier, branches are used to cover the roof. The schach, as this is called in Hebrew, must allow for sukkah dwellers to see the stars at night. This gives us the feeling that we are living in nature and experiencing the night similar to how our agrarian ancestors saw their world. Another unique feature of Sukkot is the lulav. The lulav is a binding of palm, willow, and myrtle branches. These branches are held in one's hands along with an etrog, a citron that is similar to a large lemon. The palm frond reminds us of the human back, the will of the eyes, the myrtle the lips, and the etrog the heart. Taken together, they represent the entire human body bowing down before God. And I encourage you to Google pictures of a sukkah and pictures of a lulav and etrog so that you can see what these actually look like. During sukkot observances, both in the synagogue and in the sukkah itself, we wave the lulav and etrog to the four cardinal points, north, south, east, and west, as well as up to the sky and down to the ground. This ancient ritual calls upon God to bring the fall rains and bountiful crops. 
Yes, it sounds quite ancient and almost pagan, but today it still is a festive and essential part of our celebrations. In today's thought process, Sukkot is also an environmental holiday. We associate these rituals with an awareness of Earth's fragility and our obligation to take care of it. During daily Sukkot morning worship, aside from Shabbat, we circle the sanctuary and wave the lulav and etrog. This procession is called a hoshana, coming from the words of a psalm, Na hoshiana, save us, O God. And yes, hoshana translated into hosanna. On the final day of Sukkot, called Hoshana Rabbah, the great Hoshana, we circle the sanctuary seven times and then beat the lulav into the ground. We can save the etrog to make jelly, or if we push whole cloves into it, we can make an organic spice box for Havdalah, the ceremony that marks the end of Shabbat. This is the close of the festival. After sundown, we are not obligated to dwell in the sukkah. Unlike other Jewish holidays, there really are not any specific Jewish foods associated with Sukkot. For Pesach, we think of matzah, for Shabbat, challah, for Hanukkah, latkes, and so on. But since Sukkot celebrates the fall harvest, it has become customary to eat foods appropriate to the season. So we often decorate our Sukkot and also eat our meals with apples, pumpkins, squash, and other fall foods. Of course, any type of sweets is also welcome. One last thing before we move on. As I noted in the introduction, we wave the lulav, the palm fronds, with the etrog on Sukkot. Christians should immediately wonder why we brought palm fronds to the temple in the fall and not in the spring when Jesus came to the temple on what became known as the holiday of Palm Sunday, one week before Easter. This is a matter of great academic speculation, but please be aware that to a Jew, bringing palm fronds to the temple in the spring is as strange as a Christian thinking bringing palm fronds to the temple in the fall. It's not part of our tradition and probably would not have been done in the first century. In a moment, we're going to talk about yet another holiday that immediately follows Sukkot called Simchat Torah. It's one of our most recent holidays. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome back to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. Before we return to our discussion of Sukkot and Simchat Torah, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please remember to rate and review this episode as well as previous episodes on Apple, Spotify, and other great podcasting sites. Also, you can like us on Facebook. When I mention a recent holiday, I'm talking about one that is only about 1,000 years old. In Jewish terms, that's new. The festival is called Simchat Torah, the celebration of the Torah. It concludes our holiday celebrations during the month of Tishrei, and is by far the most festive of the holy days, more festive than even Sukkot. In fact, after Simchat Torah, Jews do not have a major holiday on the calendar for another two months when Hanukkah occurs. We really need a break. From the time of Ezra, 
Jews have read the Torah on Shabbat mornings and on festivals. However, the specific verses that Jews read on a particular Shabbat varied from community to community. A synagogue in Babylonia might have read a few chapters from Genesis, while a synagogue in Rome might have read from Exodus on the same Shabbat. This caused great confusion for Jewish travelers, rabbis, and others who valued the idea that Jews scattered throughout the diaspora, from Persia to England, from North Africa to Germany, were one people. In the 9th or 10th century, the religious leaders of the Jews living under Muslim rule centralized their authority in Baghdad and issued a variety of edicts that were incumbent upon the Jews living in the Muslim world, from Spain to North Africa to Persia. Sa'adia Gaon, one of these religious leaders, standardized the Torah reading cycle. According to his rule, the final chapters of Deuteronomy and the first few chapters of Genesis would be read on the day after Sukkot. This holiday was and still is known as Simchat Torah, the joy of the Torah. In time, the Jews of Northern Europe also adopted this custom, making it a universally observed holiday for all Jews in the known world. And then the first verses of Genesis would be read on the following Shabbat after Simchat Torah as well. And the delineations were finalized and firmed firmed up so that all Jews were reading the same passages from the Torah every Shabbat. Simchat Torah is indeed a fun holiday. Taking this cue from Hoshana Rabbah, we parade the Torah scrolls around the sanctuary in a series of seven hakafot, another Hebrew word for processions. Each hakafah is introduced by a specific reading and quickly becomes an opportunity for joyous singing and dancing. This ritual is then repeated during the morning service. It is a great day and a wonderful way to end our long holiday season. Children come to the synagogue, wave holiday flags, and if they are big enough, even hold a Torah scroll. The kids also look forward to the traditional caramel apples that we give them. It really is a lot of fun. I want to thank you for listening to Torah for Christians. You can listen to and rate previous episodes on Apple, Spotify, or other popular podcast outlets. Also, you can like us on Facebook and Instagram. Next week, we will change gears, step out of the holiday cycle, and begin looking at the life cycle. And you're going to enjoy the weeks we spend on that. And I'll...